We are here with Bree Bettner from the Detroit Historical Society. You're the manager of, of educational programs. Uh, so thank you so much for appearing on the podcast. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Thanks for inviting me. I truly appreciate it. It's, uh, I will admittedly say, this is my first podcast appearance. So thank you. <laughs> well, welcome. It's, uh, I promise, it's a painless experience. <laughs> I actually was really, um, you know, I've been in contact with the Detroit Historical Society for a few months now, talking about um, tours of, of the Wind Masonic Temple. Originally, the plan was to look at doing some in person uh, with the pandemic. Uh, obviously, we switched to the virtual space. But when you got in touch with me, it kind of opened my eyes to the benefit of virtual tours for populations that might be particularly impacted right now, those who are isolated or vulnerable, the elderly. Um, I guess talk a little bit about kind of what your role is with the Detroit Historical Society and also kind of how that role has changed in light of the uh, light of COVID-19. Yeah, yeah. So um, a little bit about about my background. Um, I've been with the Historical Society for uh, just over six years um, and in various roles and very much always in the physical space. Um, many people visit museums and it's always the four walls. You've got great exhibits and just cool stuff you can see behind the scenes and things you might never ever see in the light of day. Um, and with an organization as old as ours, we're celebrating our 100-year anniversary, um, we've always been a very place-based institution um, in the sense that you come to us, you get to experience and participate in really cool behind-the-scenes like the Masonic Temple, or you get to go behind our collection. Um, and when the pandemic hit, it really change the paradigm of how we interact with visitors, really understanding what visitors are being included and which ones are being excluded in our offerings. Um, and about two years ago, um, in my role in the education department, we work with tons of kids. Uh, our local school districts, we get just over 20,000 kids in one year. So it was, that was the thing. Me, me with third and fourth graders, we were like peanut butter and jelly. Um, and we were realizing that while we were engaging with a lot of students and a lot of parents and school groups in the area, there were some schools that weren't able to access our museums. So we started really dialing in and what that accessibility meant um, and how engaging with our communities. Um, and as that <laughs> we realized also have a lot of school groups that in schools that weren't visiting because um, of our neurodiverse students that weren't getting and garnishing a, a robust program. Um, sorry, my internet's going out. A robust program that serves their needs. So we had um, a few students that had um, that were on the autism spectrum that were uh, not engaging with the with the gallery spaces like other students were. So we really started digging into what being more accessible meant. 
Um, so we've been on that venture for the last few years, being more accessible, highlighting spaces that are um, easier for parents and our children and our adults who are on the autism spectrum to visit different gallery spaces, be they quiet or loud. Um, so that really opened the doors, I would say, in the last two years. And then with COVID-19, um, prior to the pandemic, um, I became a mom myself. And when I came back from maternity leave, that is when the entire country closed down. <laughs> um, and then I was thinking, well, how do we become more accessible for people who are um, and that is when I had a few partnerships that I had garnished for the museum prior to COVID-19 really pop up. And they were like, how do we engage with our um, that have physical disabilities that can't get them out of their, their locations, um, be them physically in the hospital spaces and or in senior homes? Um, but still want to be engaging. And then there was another group that approached us that um, wanted to do some programming that engaged um, individuals with a varying ranges of dementia, but also their care partners, um, be they or you know paid caretakers. So that really evolved into us uh, creating virtual programming that allowed people to still consume and enjoy history that is relevant to the city of Detroit um, and our mission, which is telling Detroit stories and why they matter, um, but also really aligning with opening doors and sharing more information, more artifacts that people wouldn't see even if they came to our physical spaces. Um, so yeah, it was, it's been a, it's been a journey. I, I wouldn't say that we are um, the perfect example of what to and not to do. I think we're still learning. Um, but thus far, it's been really, really fun and really engaging um, with the programs that we've done. I think every, uh, everybody is, is kind of still learning right now. Uh, you know, COVID-19 has forced a lot of uh, historical spaces and, and museums and heritage spaces to explore the online world and the virtual war world um, a lot more than they perhaps had previously. Do you, do you think that moving forward, even once, you know, um, restrictions are lifted and, you know, the vaccinations have, have done their work, uh, do, you, do you see museums and heritage sites going back to um, purely physical spaces, or do you think that the use of virtual engagement is kind of here to stay? Um, I mean, I think that there will be a nice blend of both. Um, you know, historically, cultural organizations, be they, you know, museums, collecting institutions, zoos, they've always been place-based for years, decades, um, centuries. <laughs> And to say that that wouldn't be the cornerstone of how they operate moving forward, um, I'd be surprised if we moved away from that. But I do think that uh, cultural organizations will be serving different purposes moving forward as safe gathering spaces. Um, I think that how we collect and how we share is changing, especially with virtual 
Um, but there's another argument to be made is how, while being virtual makes us more accessible, um, it also can make you a little bit more inaccessible. Um, not everybody has access to computers and you know strong Wi-Fi signals. Um, and I think museums are also, um, and cultural organizations are also trying to figure out ways to make that possible, that type of accessibility more possible. Um, in fact, our organization is working um, with fellow um, museums and organizations in the Midtown area of Detroit, and we're actually going to be putting Wi-Fi in the outdoor uh, corridor for the museum. So if you're visiting Midtown, there will be free Wi-Fi for people to connect to. Um, again, to increase with accessibility, it's still very much place-based. Um, but it'll it'll provide people an additional um, you know uh, avenue to access what all of these amazing institutions have to share, be it the the DIA, the Hellenic Museum, the Detroit Public Library, um, or us. So I think that there's there's great things that are coming of the digital footprint that we've created through the pandemic. Um, but I still think that in some way, shape, or form, there will always be the four walls of the museum. I think that's just a hope. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I, I absolutely think you're right. I, the place is, is, is always going to be so important. Uh, but it feels like with the pandemic, perhaps because they've been forced to, uh, not just you know museums, but also in, in Freemasonry, Masonic temples and Masonic lodges are just becoming more, um, whether willingly or not, in the case of Freemasonry, uh, are becoming just more comfortable with the idea of virtual education or virtual programs or, or connecting with individuals in the the virtual space yeah so yeah, it's it's interesting for sure um and i think that there's value in how we share our physical spaces too um you know i our organization has historically always done um for example a historic houses worship bus tour it's very physical people we get about 50 people who participate we load onto buses and we get to travel to different historical places of worship be they churches temples mosques in the city of, of detroit and um it's been one of our like favorite programs quote unquote i'd say in in the last couple decades and when we stopped running the program um, right before COVID, we were revamping kind of who and what museum or what um, churches we were going to. And we had a lot of asks, like, are you guys going to do this program again? Um, so we've been doing a virtual historic houses of worship program. And it's been interesting because I've done this presentation virtually a few times and Every time I do the tour, after the tour, it's amazing how many people are like, oh, I'm going to drive by this church or this location after this. I'm going to I'm going to drive by and kind of see what it looks like, even though you showed me pictures. Um, and it's still allowing people to show interest in these historical locations. They're not losing their value. It almost is like they're increasing their value and providing validity of their history and their impact in our communities. Um, so that's been really cool to see too, in terms of the participants um, that have been engaging virtually with us um, and kind of the effect. That is absolutely awesome, right? And that I think that's the hope 
for the Windsor Masonic Temple for, for any tour is when, when it's done on the virtual space is that um, it encourages individuals to then check it out in person um, after they've seen it virtually and, and to drive by and then once restrictions are lifted to visit in person and tour in person. Um, it's just a chance to to see a space you might not get to see otherwise um, and then hopefully one day visit in person. Yeah. Yeah, it's been it's been really, really fun. Um, but to that end, I can't wait until I'm in the physical spaces again. Um, selfishly, I'm very excited for that. <laughs> I, I'm yeah, very I, I, with my one year old. <laughs> no, he's well, yeah, that, that I'm sure that I'm sure you can't wait to get back into the actual physical spaces in that case. Right, right. I, uh, you know, when you got in touch with me, um, your your focus was particularly on holding uh, a virtual tour for people who are, as you discussed, you know, neurodiverse um, or uh, suffering from their elderly or having dementia and their care partners. Mm -hmm. I guess it just kind of, we all know that right now it's particularly um, an isolating time, but then perhaps even more so for some of those at-risk groups. Uh, elderly people, people with dementia and their, their care partners, um, people with different developmental issues. Um, I guess how important is it, especially now that we're all isolating, to continue reaching out however we can to some of those high-risk populations that may be experiencing more isolation than yeah. the rest of us? Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the big things about doing programs and celebrating our history and sharing our history is that reminiscence is a very big part of, you know, our elderly population, be they suffering from dementia or not. And that, that value of, of sharing and remembering their lived histories, be it, you know, when they were in their 20s coming to downtown Detroit and shopping at Hudson's during the holiday season, or perhaps going across the Ambassador Bridge in their car for the first time to Windsor, whatever those personal experiences are, providing programs, even if it's just the general history of Detroit in the 1920s, or if it's highlighting the you know, religious, um, historical places down in Detroit. And every presentation gives our elderly population a, a, a space to share their story. Um, I always want to ensure that they have the time to include when, you know, Edna and Ron went to their first disco downtown because that, that sharing provides them to break down the walls of that isolation. They're engaging with people virtually, yes, but in sharing their stories with me, somebody who's a historian, or sharing their stories with others in the chat, it's providing, um, in essence, that communication of, of the fact that they are still relevant, as they definitely are, to the continuing of collecting our our social story of our community. Um, in particular with 
uh, you know, our populations with, uh, that are affected by dementia, um, we have partnered with the Alzheimer's Association of Southeastern or of Greater Michigan. So it's Southeastern Michigan. And um, they have this amazing program. It's called Community Connect. And the whole basis of the program is, is providing a, a area for caretakers and those that are on varying ranges uh, you know, of dementia to participate in programs. And we actually partnered with them prior to COVID where they would come to the museum spaces and we would do really fun in-person programs um, that tied to Detroit history, of course. Um, but they also partner with other organizations, the DIA, the, the um, Detroit Zoological Society. And um, those being it done physically allowed caretakers and family members to kind of relax, take a deep breath and know that their loved ones are in a safe space. They're engaging with others um, and breaking down the isolation. And and one of my big fears was doing this in a digital realm, like how do you still provide that solace for the family member that's stressing out? Um, you know, I've, I've had to take care of an ill family member before. It's not easy. It's very difficult. It's stressful. Add a pandemic on that, I can't even imagine, right? Um, so I was going into this, how do we develop programs that are, are still providing this, this comfort for the caretaker, this opportunity, this, you know, quote unquote break if they need it, because we all need mental breaks, um, but also still engaging with that individual that is, is um, you know, suffering from dementia, be it Alzheimer's or a different form. And um, it, that is really where we started connecting with um, really the cornerstones of what we learned from the Alzheimer's Association is that individuals that have been diagnosed with dementia, they tend to connect with a few particular things, even though they're losing their memory. Um, and one of those big things is music. Music is something that no matter where you are um, with the progression of the disease, music is a connector with their history. It connects them to the memories. So we always try to include some sort of musical element, whether it's talking about music that comes from the city of Detroit, um, whether it's different venues that celebrated music. Um, another one is, um, of course, how we're sharing and communicating. Um, we always, we've actually joked a few times, cuss words are always remembered. I don't know how or why that is, um, but they are. So we're not cussing throughout programs, but I'm just saying that is a connector for many individuals, um, but trying to connect to what their, their reminiscences are um, and how we can tie them to the content that we're sharing. Um, so that's, that's been interesting. We're actually doing the um, Negro Motorist Green Book. Um, so highlighting different venues in the city of Detroit that would have been part of uh, the Green Book. So safe havens, jazz clubs. Um, so again, connecting that music um, is a really, really big one for, for our elderly and uh, dementia uh, communities. So it's like a multifaceted <laughs> Rubik's Cube um, of an explanation. Um, but yeah, it's, it's honestly, I think at the very end of the day, it's your intentionality behind it. I, I hope that you can, you can tell that I'm very passionate about it. I obviously, you know, want everybody to engage and, and enjoy it. Um, but also, you know, just that personal connection at the end of the day is the biggest takeaway for our groups that participate. In, in terms of, of 
connecting to your music, you kind of lucked out to be in uh, in Detroit. I mean, short of maybe Nashville, I can't think of um, maybe Chicago. You know, a city with such a, you know, Detroit has such an amazing music history uh, yeah. behind it. Uh, I love music myself. Uh, Motown and just any I love anything music to be honest but Detroit <laughs> has such a uh, amazing musical history behind it I'm sure there's been some amazing stories on that aspect of Detroit um, and that you've been able to use for for these tours it's been a, it's been really really interesting and it's and it is it's very multifaceted there's there's no music that hasn't passed through the city of Detroit affected us in the communities that live here in some you know way shape or form um you know, we've had everything, obviously, from Motown, techno, jazz. Um, we talked about the Native American population, and we had a jingle dress dancer, and that's, you know, music in and of itself, and it's a very unique form of dance and song. So it's just, you know, it's it's very cool, and um, I, I, honestly, as long as it connects to Detroit's history, it's, it's really easy to do um, and share, so it's a fun one. To ask, um, well, it seem like a uh, a very simple question, but I know there's a lot of different facets to it. Um, you've been with the Detroit Historical Society for six years. You mentioned at the start. What is it? Um, we'll start with the the well. We'll go with that very simple uh, kind of question. Uh, why why is it important to preserve and promote not just preserve but also to promote a a city's history whether it be detroit or windsor or, or kind of any any community in in canada united states just throughout the world uh, um Oh gosh, I'm such a nerd. You're gonna, you're now gonna know how nerdy I am. Um, I am, I'm a nerd too. <laughs> we'll be nerds together. Um, you know, I actually, so I always say I'm a transplant. I grew up in the military, um, and I wasn't able to call a place home for very long because we were always shuffling about. But one of the, like the landing pads, no matter where, you know my dad's job took us was finding the local library and finding the local museum and really understanding the history of the area and oh gosh a really long time ago <laughs> i had read a quote that said let the footsteps of the past inspire the legacies of tomorrow and i'm a really bad person because i don't know who said that <laughs> um but it's it's something that i personally live by and i think that it's very introspective of of our communities today you know we we always as human want to know um you know where we're from where we've been where we've gone what we've conquered what we've taken over and some of that is just reflected in how we're taught history you know, we always, we always learn the history of the winners, as it said. Um, but I also think that there's just a big element of understanding how we engage with our, our spaces, be it near water, um, in cityscapes, in the country, um, and how humans have truly persevered through time. Um, 
I, my formal education is in archaeology. So that's kind of where I created a passion about how humans have shaped our environments and um, how these physical spaces have built up, gone below, all sorts of things. And um, I think through that is where we find our relevance um, and our influence in being the caretakers of history. And it really hit home further because I, I started at the museum um, working the front desk. I was uh, one of our visitor services associates. I loved really engaging with people who were coming into the museums, um, kind of understanding where they were visiting from, be it Germany or Japan or the Motor City brings lots of cool people. So I got to engage with the public and it was really, really fun. And then I moved into the education department um, right at the time when our organization was um, just beginning to unpack and build out the Detroit 67 project, which was a 50th anniversary uh, retrospective of the um, 67 riots. And really what happened during um, July of 1967 and that tumultuous summer of the civil rights movement and the Detroit cityscape and, you know, what communities were suffering, which ones were, were um, growing and declining. And um, it was amazing because it was one of the first times that our organization as a staff started collecting oral histories. Um, and you know, when you think of museums, you just think like, oh, we collect objects and then we talk about those amazing objects and they are amazing objects, but there's something interesting and extremely valuable in collecting stories. Um, similarly to what you're doing right now, Cameron, is um, you're providing the community a way of sharing their perspective that goes beyond an artifact or a piece of paper or physical quote unquote evidence of what happened in that space. Um, and it allowed our city citizens to, to contribute to the story and the narrative that was being shared in that space. Um, so that's actually one of the reasons why we ended up calling the exhibit Perspectives, because as we were collecting all these oral histories, we realized that while some people called it the 67 riots, a lot of people called it the uprising, um, some, uh, some people called it the rebellion. And, you know, who are we as, as um, the historians, the museum, to label a particular event when we weren't there living through it? Um, rather, we're sharing what the community's perspectives were of the event. Those that participated, witnessed, um, or even were there living through um, what happened after 67. And I think that those foundations that we created and collected during 67 is something that was so transformative as a staff that we're, we're still carrying through in the work that we're doing moving forward. Um, so history is important and it's, in, it's obviously very important that we share everybody's um, engagement in a particular topic, especially if it's about a particular community. Um, but yeah, I just, the footsteps of the past truly do inspire the legacies of tomorrow, no matter what walk of life you've been. Um, so that's kind of my, my mantra. <laughs> that is a very good mantra. I, I agree completely. It's why I'm, I'm a big cheerleader for um, the idea of trying to protect and maintain uh, Masonic temples. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, the, the, the kind of the grand era of Masonic temple building was um, from between the 1870s to the 1930s. That's kind of like the golden age of, of temple building. So any Masonic temples that are still from that era, which are still in existence and still used as Masonic temples, are going to be heritage properties at this point. And that, you know, comes with all of the good and the, the challenges that come with the heritage property in terms of maintenance and just heritage properties bring their own unique sets of challenges with them, but also um, just opportunities. And, and as you discussed, right, those, those footsteps, all the, the history that's in a, a Masonic temple from those time periods, um, Unfortunately, we've lost a few of them over the years in New York, Chicago, but Detroit and Windsor are still going strong. I mean, in Detroit, the Masonic Temple was built in the 1920s, mm-hmm. um, as was in Windsor, it was built in 1921. So we're also celebrating our 100 year anniversary. So it's just- Congrats. <laughs> we're, we're turning 100 together. Oh my gosh, we're centurions now. Centurions? Centurions. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> We're, we're old, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I like to say we're vintage. We age well, but like, like good wine. Um, that's, um, that's right. That's what I'm going to say during our, uh, we're not old. We're just, we're, we're aging like fine wine. Yeah. Vintage is, is way more, it's uh, accessible for our younger population. It sounds cool. <laughs> I'm going to run with, uh, with, with vintage, but yeah, it's just that, 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 you know, the importance of maintaining historical structures and heritage properties, especially in, in Freemasonry, because we have lost some over the years, um, I think is particularly important and showing them off to different groups. And one thing, you know, you know, the Masonic temples, and, and uh, granted, I'm by no means an expert when it comes to their history, uh, so I will leave, leave that with you, Cameron. But um, one thing that I have noticed as an outsider looking in is temp- a lot of the temples have, have started going through their own renaissance of what it means to be relevant today. Um, before museums and all these cultural organizations have done it, right? By being, um, you know, dwellings for the community to participate in. Because I do know that the Detroit Masonic Temple is now home to um, a church on the weekends. Like being a space where people can convene is a huge thing. Um, Even though historically speaking, it was aligned with a particular group or order. Um, So kudos to you, even being the front runners to to opening your doors for our communities. Um, it's pretty great. And I, I agree. And, and, you know, the Detroit Masonic Temple, even from, from the very beginning of its history, because uh, construction started there, if I recall correctly, in 1920, um, you know, it, it's such an amazing, not just Masonic home, but community home. I mean, the theater, uh, it's funny, you're talking to people from Windsor, so many people, you know, they knew the name Detroit Masonic Temple, but they never put two and two together that it was a Masonic Temple. Because they would be going there for concerts and, you know, Phantom of the Opera and to see kind of the the bands of the day um, and concerts. And, you know, it was 
And that's the thing about some Masonic temples. I feel like the Windsor Masonic Temple is the same way. It's a Masonic home, but it's also a community home. It's, you know, been home to weddings and dances and graduations. And it's just, it's got the memories of the whole community and they're not just Masonic memories. Um, so I'm yeah. trying to share those as much as I can, including in, in our tours, because it's, you know, Freemasonry is obviously a major part of the building, but its relationship with the community is a major part of the building as well. It's contributions to the community. It's not just a relationship. Like, I mean, marriages and weddings and funerals and baptisms and all of those things is 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 what is our lived history as we continue as a as a human race. It's amazing that that the the temples are there to to help us document it. So. Give yourself more credit where credit is due, my friend. <laughs> no, I agree completely. It's it's, uh, it's contributed a lot to the communities over the years. So I'm happy to share that with uh, Detroit Historical Society. I got to ask, because you mentioned it earlier, you're, you said your, um, uh, your university program was in archaeology? Yeah, my formal education is um, anthropology, archaeology. Um, and then I went on, I worked at a few archaeological sites across the United States, and I had two field supervisors um, that told me, you know, Brie, you're really great at what you do. And they said it very kindly. They're like, you talk way too much. Um, and that was when I was wink, wink, nudge, nudge, encouraged <laughs> to go get my master's um, in museum studies um, because I just loved talking about what we were digging up way too much. Um, so I went on and continued my education in museum studies. And then I landed in education and I absolutely love it. I get to talk about artifacts. I get to talk with people. I get to celebrate the history of of different areas. It's fun. I absolutely love it. <laughs> that is very cool. My undergrad, um, which feels like it was a crazy long time ago, uh, it was also in anthropology. And uh, oh, okay. I did one, um, I did one uh, field school, one archaeological dig uh, during my undergrad in a place called, it was called Lauder, Manitoba, which was a town of like eight people and we all slept in tents in the middle of the this town and then drove yeah. out in the mornings to the uh, to the site i was not i was not the best archaeologist i did not <laughs> have an eye for like like um i, I was not very detail oriented i could never get my like my plots to be square and all that stuff i was the worst at that type of stuff but I still <laughs> I still remember very fondly my uh, my one summer as an archaeologist but that is there you go it's, it's a lot of dirt it's a, it's it's uh yeah it's a it's a lot of patience I will definitely say that I got I get a lot of people like oh like Indiana Jones you just go into a cave and you grab you know the golden figurine I'm like no it's not like that at all it's I'm, literally digging the dirt one millimeter at a time and making sure you don't lift anything up and <laughs> um, yeah, my hope was it'd be like indiana jones i had the hat right? <laughs> i was all set and then oh wow just now i'm reminiscing about my time at uh where'd you do your archaeological digs you said uh, America? yeah so i i did a few uh, uh different ones um one of the coolest ones was actually uh when i was here 
um, and it was my first like urban archaeological dig, was at the Moses Wisner House in Pontiac um, in conjunction with the Oakland Pioneer Historical Society out there. Um, and it was digging up the old ice house um, that would essentially had been turned into the garbage dump, as many sites truly do become. Um, but that was a really fun one because that's where I realized that the effect of bringing up what was thrown away really affected on a small scale the community that um, lived in that area and what it meant to the historical society um, and, you know, the um, matriarchs and patriarchs of, of that area. So that was really, really, really cool. Um, and that was actually one of the last ones that I did before I went on and to, to get my master's degree. Um, the only time I dig in the dirt now is when I garden. <laughs> um, but I do know, I do know the fun thing is I do know that the Michigan State University, Wayne State University have very, um, great archaeological programs. I, I, um, volunteered very briefly, um, with Michigan State University and Oakland University at the, uh, colonial, uh, Fort Michelmackinac. Um, which is, I believe, uh, the oldest ongoing archaeological dig in the state of Michigan. I think it's just over 70 years now, um, which is pretty phenomenal with like Michigan winters and everything. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that was a really, really fun one. And um, when I went out there, um, you know, that area has been occupied by, you know, Native American, French, and British, and they were just digging out the British occupation um so that was really cool to kind of see what artifacts were coming up there um but I was actually talking to a coworker this morning I was like it's sad how when people think of archaeology they think of we're just digging up dinosaur bones but in this area in particular there's just so much more history to to un unearth um so yeah not nothing too crazy by no means was I the Indiana Jones of of my field or anything, but I dabbled. <laughs> well, I was Indiana Jones. <laughs> You're like, I was there. Louder Manitoba. Uh, no, one of the cool ones is the Wayne State University. They did an archaeological dig outside of the train station, right? The um, central station in downtown Detroit. So that's really neat and they have a lot of their artifacts that they dug up on display in their archaeological museum so help you know shameless plug anybody's interested go <laughs> and it gives no that sounds great i would that, i'd love to check it out myself but i don't think they let me cross the border right now but knock on i know the i know once i can cross <laughs> i'll put you in contact with the person over there <laughs> very cool actually the the oldest um speaking of trains trains the oldest lodge in Windsor I'll talk about this on the tour but it dates to 1854 it's the great it's Great Western Lodge it is named after the Great Western Rail Line which oh. had a terminal point here in Windsor so oh I did not know that that's really cool yeah there's a I mean it makes sense there the rail lines going across our our two cities was quite extensive at the turn of the last century so I didn't know the impact of a lodge being made because of it, though. Interesting. Yeah. But inter just that interconnectivity of our two communities is 
just unpacking that story. Um, it's just really, really fun. <laughs> well, it's, it's amazing how, how connected Windsor and Detroit are yeah. and stories about people in, you know, the fifties and sixties, just walking across the ambassador bridge. Um, yeah. I, I even heard stories that sometimes people didn't realize it was a separate country necessarily. They just, it was so commonplace to travel back and forth or you don't think of it as, as a separate country. Um, yeah. It's so common to travel back and forth before the days of needing a passport or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. We get a lot of stories of, um, you know, when people visit the museum, because um, we have the Detroit Historical Museum in Midtown, but we also have the Dawson Great Lakes Museum on Belle Isle. And while the Dawson Museum definitely highlights, you know, our maritime influences of this area um, and kind of a legacy of what it means to be, a, a, you know, a, a maritime superhighway, um, obviously we're staring at Canada when we're at the, the Dawson Museum on Belle Isle. And it's just so funny to talk about with our visitors, you know, oh, I remember when I was 18, 17, 18 years old, and we tried to take a rowboat across the Detroit River to, <laughs> to Windsor. Um, you know, oh, the prohibition stories abound. I'm sure you get the, the same ones from Windsor. Um, because, you know, the illicit trade of alcohol is just a, a hot topic. Um, so, yeah, all sorts of fun stuff. We get so many stories. Um, so it's, it's a great uh, connector. We also do, um, especially with the, you know, it being 2021, we do a virtual presentation on Boomtown Detroit. And we always show kind of like the growth of the city of Detroit, the growth of Windsor and, you know, how the two, two cities were interacting with each other. And then I always show this one image of when the tunnel first opened and it's got like a Model T driving through the tunnel. And I, every time I show this photo, people are like, the tunnel used to be that clean. It's very dirty now. <laughs> and I'm like, well, a lot of cars go through it now, <laughs> but it's just a funny because, you know, everybody knows the tunnel. <laughs> There's not a single person that probably hasn't been in that tunnel before. So it's a, it's a no, I've, I've been through it many times. Many people have. Yeah. It's, um, I'm sure it was much cleaner. Although who, maybe now it's it's getting cleaned again because obviously traffic yeah. is pretty pretty reduced. But yeah, I've I've spent many. Uh, I'm sure it's many hours at this point driving or, or on the tunnel <laughs> bus going through that tunnel. Yep, yep. It's definitely a good conversation starter. Um, yeah, and when it was redone, oh goodness, they redid the tile a few few years ago now. But when it was redone, the in the middle of the tunnel, you know, it says as the Canadian flag and United States flag um, to kind of show the, the country's borders. And uh, our museum was um, given the old tile work that said, welcome to United States. Um, and it hangs in our gallery of culture at the museum. So it's always a fun one when you're physically in the space to look, just look up and explain to our, our little, little visitors and our adult visitors, like, hey, this was from that um so we got a little history history there. <laughs> uh, i didn't know so uh if i take a couple uh minutes i didn't know that this was going to be the detroit historical society's 100 year anniversary um i'm uh, guessing a lot of plans had to be changed uh due to covid19 but is there anything special that the detroit historical society has planned to celebrate its 100th anniversary uh, as much as you can, you know, currently. 
No, for sure. Um, so yeah, there's a few things coming down the pike. Um, one is as of the Saturday, we will have our new um, exhibition open. Um, it is called Boomtown Detroit. And um, similarly, uh, like we did for D67, um, we wanted to introduce Detroiters that lived during the 1920s um, from all walks of life. So it highlights different individuals that lived in the city of Detroit during that time. Um, and of course, we acknowledge and showcase the history of our museum as a collecting institution, kind of how it started. Um, but that exhibit opens on Saturday. Um, so I was just talking to a few of our ex exhibition team mates this morning and they were in a flurry to get things done. Um, so that's a really fun thing. We're also um, in the process of completing a book just to celebrate our 100 year anniversary. Um, our organization, while starting off as a historical society um, in 1921, was, you know, ebb and flow as many historical organizations do. You know, we had a partnership and then we were a part of the city of Detroit and then we separated from the city of Detroit. Um, and we are still, we are now still separated from the, the city of Detroit, um, but the collection is technically owned by the city. So just kind of explaining that, that relationship and that growth um, is just a really fun story to, to delve into. Um, and then we have some really unique programs that are coming out this summer. Um, hopefully right now they're both virtual and physical um, programs, but I really won't know until we get a little closer to, <laughs> to that time frame. But um, if anybody's ever interested, you can always check out our website, which is DetroitHistorical.org. Um, so lots of fun stuff's coming. <laughs> very cool and i will leave the um i'll leave the website link in the description down below at the uh in the description for this video uh, and the audio yeah i am very much looking forward to both the the tours i'm i'm hosting for the general public with the tourist Service society as well as on february 3rd and in june um uh, facilitated by, uh, for um, kind of the, the population or the elderly or kind of the, the group tours for elderly or, or neurodiverse individuals. Uh, I'm just very much looking forward to being connected and working with Detroit Historical Society because Detroit and Windsor have such a uh, strong connection. It's great to have that connection also between the Windsor Masonic Temple and Detroit Historical Society. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really geeked that we were able to connect. Um, I'm glad that we were able to share each other's stories. It's so fantastic to, to put in a uh, face to the name, even if it's virtually, um, but also, you know, providing platforms for us to share our expertise, our knowledge, our communities. Um, so yeah, I'm really, really, really jazzed for, for what's up, what's coming up. Um, and there's more, my friends, this is not the end. This is a the beginning <laughs> uh, absolutely and that that border is going to reopen eventually and then yes. I, I can't wait to, to get to visit the Detroit historical society and to have you guys down in person and get to visit the uh, masonic temple heck yes it's going to be great it's going to be great. we have one more connection that's even being built we have another bridge come on we're going to be more connected than we know here soon <laughs> absolutely and with that, uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak with me. And 
for your work with the Detroit Historical Society and preserving these stories from Detroit's history. Because as you talked about, right, it's such an important uh, way to, um, you know, it's necessary not just to preserve the past, but it's also how we move forward in our cities and our communities. So thank you so much. Thank you, Cameron. You have a great day.